Well, amen. That was worth coming for right there. Amen. I want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, maybe you didn't know you had brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada, but you do. God is alive and at work in our city. I've had the privilege now of living and calling Las Vegas my home for 21, almost 22, be 22 years this December and have been able to join in God's activity in an unbelievable way. It's, there's just nothing like being in a church that is filled with first-generation believers. Uh, our church every weekend, we had uh, about 4,000 people this weekend that gathered for worship in our church services, and we had 7,000 this Easter, baptized 105 uh, two weeks ago that came to know the Lord. And when you see a church filled with new believers, it's just all people that are new in Christ. Like nobody comes to church because it's what you do, because in Las Vegas, it is not what you do. It is not the culturally accepted thing to go to church. As a matter of fact, they're like, what are you doing at church on a Sunday morning? But God is moving in our city. We've been able to see God's activity firsthand and watch God just do unbelievable things. When I travel around the country and around the world, people always you know, ask, what's it like pastoring in a place like Las Vegas? Well, number one is a lot of job security for a pastor in a place like Las Vegas. Uh, but it's, I tell you what it's really like. Go home tonight, read the book of 1 Corinthians. You see, what we've done often is we've put our Baptist goggles on and how we read the Scripture. If you read 1 Corinthians, it's messy. Like these people that came to Christ out of a far-from-God lifestyle. In the book of 1 Corinthians, take your Baptist goggles off. There's a lot of mess going on in the church in Corinth. And that's kind of like our church in Vegas. Man, it's messy, but there's a purity about the pursuit of Jesus. On a Sunday when you see the, the, the messiness sometimes, like one of my favorite stories in Vegas of seeing people come to Christ, we had a lady that was in her 70s and she came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior and she had uh, lived a hard Las Vegas lifestyle. And I'll let you kind of fill in the blanks of what that maybe means, but she lived a hard Las Vegas life in her 70s, comes to Christ. The way we were baptizing at this point, we were baptizing outside and playing it on a screen inside. So I'm on microphone, I'm baptizing her, and I said, ma'am, is it your testimony that you've come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? And she said, hell yes! <laughs> and then I just got her underwater as quick as I could before she said anything else. But here's what I had to understand. That was her hallelujah. Like, like she didn't know anything else. She'd just been redeemed and rescued, having been far from God, thinking God cared nothing about her, and she met a man that she'd been looking for her whole life, and his name was Jesus. And she'd been so changed by the power of the gospel that she just was excited about the difference that Christ has made in her life. And that's the messiness of new Christians in a place like Las Vegas, but there's a purity Man, when you gather for worship on a Sunday from the front row to the back, the back row, nobody came to church to go home. They came to church to be at church. Like they came to worship God and everybody's leaned in. The farthest person sitting away in the worship center isn't sitting there because they wanted to be in the back. They just happened to get there last. And they're as leaned in as the person on the front row. So there is an excitement about what God's doing there. So when you see the city of Las Vegas in the news, I want to encourage you to pray for God to continue to move. There are pockets in our city where there are 200,000 people who would live in that box if I drew it on a map and not one evangelical Christian church at all inside that box. You imagine that? I asked Pastor Ted today at lunch how many people lived in the kind of Pensacola metro area, and I think we landed on about four or 500,000 people that live in that area. Think about 200,000 people and not one evangelical Christian church at all. And I'm not talking about Russia or China. I'm talking about God bless America right here in our own nation. That's true up and down the West Coast, up in the Northeast. And so just pray for these cities. And I also bring you greetings from the Sin Network. It's such an honor to be able to serve churches like yours and multiplying the church with a heart for the nations in cities and communities all across North America that the mission would be accomplished. And we are seeing great things happen. I, I, this is my tail end. I, I, leave, I fly home in the morning. I've been 16 days on the road, 16 days in a carry-on suitcase. So this is not the first time I've worn this, all right? 
Uh, but I have a deep spiritual conviction about checking bags on airplanes. So I, uh, I've been in a care, but I leave tomorrow. But I've been in uh, Atlanta, New York, Toronto, here, and then home. I just came here from Toronto, Canada, the largest. We just had the largest gathering of church planters ever in the history of Canada, in Toronto, Canada. God is moving there in power, and it's happening because of your generosity and investment. So it's an honor to be here. Pastor Ted, thank you for having me. Uh, he, he asked me to preach tonight in a way to encourage the church, and I had this all planned, everything that I was going to do, and then the weather hit, and I got here, and I still was planning to do what I, you'd asked me to do, and then sitting there on the front row when the choir was singing that, that next to last song, God just changed the direction in my heart of what I was supposed to do in this moment. And uh, it's going to fit what you ask me to do, but I'm going to come from a different direction in sharing with you. I want to share out of my own story some, some verses that God has used in my own life in a profound way. Uh, so before I do that, can I, can I pray one more time? Let me do that. Father, I pray in this moment that as only you can by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take the Word of God, speak to the people of God, do the work of God that only you can do so that the mission of God may be accomplished for the glory of God all over the world. Lord, I always know when I stand in a pulpit like this, I need you, but God, I really feel that right now because you just really changed the direction of what I wanted to do in this moment. And I had a plan, but Lord, my job is to be submissive to your plan. So, Lord, I pray you'd speak in these moments and you'd direct this time. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I became a follower of Jesus when I was a freshman in college. My dad, he mentioned a moment ago, was a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home, but I, my mom and dad were first-generation Christians from North Alabama, but my grandparents, my great-grandparents were not believers. My grandparents, I got to lead some of them to Christ, but my mom and dad were the first people in either side of our family to come to know Jesus. But then my dad became a pastor, so by the time I came along, I was raised in a Christian family. I was raised in a pastor's home. I heard the gospel hundreds, probably thousands of times. Pastor Ted said it a moment ago, but I, I stamp it as true. I think personally my dad is one of the greatest preachers of the Word of God you will ever hear. I got an education in theology growing up. My dad would preach from a book of the Bible on Sunday morning, a different book of the Bible on Sunday night, and a different book of the Bible on Wednesday night. Three books of the Bible for all of my life is what I heard him teach and preach through. But it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I came to the place in my own life that I understood what it meant to surrender the control of my life to Jesus. And I began a relationship with Jesus. But because I'd been raised in the church, in particular in our tribe, the Baptist church, I made a mistake very early on in my Christian journey. And here's the mistake I made. I confused spiritual maturity with spiritual activity. Here's what I mean by that. The more you do for Jesus, the more spiritual you are. And I lived a good portion of my Christian life trying to flesh that out. There's a, there's a quote by Henry Blackaby who's had a profound impact on my life, and here's what he said. Blackaby said, we are so activity-oriented that we assume we were saved for a task to perform rather than for a relationship to enjoy. So here's what it looked like for me. I started out on this thing of living the Christian life, and man, I tried hard. I'd grown up in church, so I knew what you're supposed to do. I, I knew all the do's, don'ts, rights, wrongs, rules, and regulations. I knew the systems. I knew the structures. I knew the processes. I knew what was expected, and so I laid into it. With every ounce of energy I had, I tried hard to be a good Christian. And no matter how hard I tried, I'd come to Sunday after Sunday like this and look around the room and think, how do they do it? Because I felt like no matter how hard I tried, every time I took one step forward, I took two steps backward. 
And no matter how diligent I tried, I never seemed to be able to measure up. As a matter of fact, there were even verses in the Bible that made no sense to me at all. For example, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. You know that verse? Here's what it says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you. Say it out loud. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is... And my burden is, listen, if you'd have let me pick three words to describe my Christian experience, you could not have picked three words that were further removed from my understanding of trying to live the Christian life than rest, easy, and light. As a matter of fact, if you'd let me pick, I'd have picked these three words, work, hard, and heavy. That's what Christianity felt like to me. It was hard work and the burden of trying to measure up to what I thought Christianity was supposed to be. Here's another verse. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I didn't feel freedom. I felt like I'd just exchanged one set of chains for another set of chains. And the worst part of this is by this point in my life, I was now pastoring my first church. Now, it's, it's not ironic. It's, it's interesting that where the Lord led me tonight, Pastor Jeff LeBorg sitting over here, Jeff and I pastored our first churches in the same county together in a little small community in Middle Tennessee. We were about 20 minutes away from each other pastoring churches, and I'm preaching on one side of the county, he's on the other side, and we just had this covenant that we were going to go to the middle and just win the whole county to Jesus between us. And we really were, we, we were giving it a good shot. Like, we were both baptizing people like crazy, but, but I was still living out of this performance-based Christianity. And, and here's the operative word that we love to talk about, particularly in Baptist circles, and it's the word commitment. Commitment. You know, the problem with the word is not a very Bible word. <laughs> There's another word in the Bible. It's the word die. That's a little different than commitment. Commitment implies I got something to bring to the table to commit. Die is I got nothing. So I have to die to myself. And I I was preaching and I would preach and I would, every sermon was another commitment and another commitment and another commitment because it's just what I knew. I was laying, I don't think I ever preached a sermon. We didn't have a card that you could fill out at the end with some kind of commitment that we expected you to make. And then it happened. I was pastoring this church. When I went there, it ran about 250 people. It was in a town of 4,000. In three years, Pastor Ted, we baptized 350 people into that church. Jeff was baptizing about that many people on the other side of the county. Our church grew. We were running almost six, 700 people on a weekend in this little town of 4,000 people. And long story short, I was a young preacher. I didn't know that not everybody got excited when the church grew. We had 13 non-rotating deacons that chaired every major committee in our church. What I didn't understand at the time is that they were the pastor. I was the preacher. There's a difference. Power struggle ensued over about a three-week period of time. End story is they asked myself and my family to leave throughout all kind of accusations. I just preached my last sermon at Hope two weekends ago after 21 years, and I've been in ministry 32 years. I stood before our church, and I said, this is my first time to ever do this. The last time I went away, they, I went because they asked me. I didn't get to preach a going-away sermon, so I'd never had experience doing this before. But in one night, God left me with nothing. I mean, I thought I was doing everything he wanted me to do. I, I was going to be the next golden boy. I was going to preach and pastor the next big church. And, the, and then one night it was gone. One vote on the congregation floor and it's all over. And I came to the absolute greatest discovery of my life. 
Jesus is enough. You see, for me up until that point, it was always Jesus plus. I needed Jesus plus a good day obeying the Lord. Jesus plus a growing church. Jesus plus a good sermon. Jesus plus a meeting the budget. Jesus plus a growing staff team. Jesus plus a bigger platform. And when everything got stripped away and I was left with nothing but Jesus, I came to the greatest discovery of my life. He is enough. I had a guy that started discipling me at that time named Clyde Cranford. And Clyde taught me to begin to pursue Christ's life in the Gospels. I said, what do you mean by that? He taught me to in my devotional life to with regularity come back to a gospel not that you read the gospels exclusively but the gospels are where you begin to see the life of Christ he taught me that the Christian life was not me living for Jesus but the Christian life was Jesus living his life in and through me now listen that may sound like just semantics but that's the difference in religion and relationship There's a whole lot of people filling Baptist churches that think God saved you so now you can do something for him. He didn't save you so you could do something for him. He saved you so you could be with him so he could do something through you. Very different. And when I began to understand that the expectation wasn't on me, the expectation was on him, I began to experience freedom. But Clyde taught me to pursue Christ's life in the gospel. So one morning, I'm in Luke chapter 4. I'm just reading the gospels, and I'm looking for stuff in Jesus that's not in me. And I get to this passage of Scripture, Luke 4, verse 42. If you got your Bible, we're going to camp out here. Luke 4, 42. I'm reading out of the ESV. Here's what it says. And when it was day, he departed, Jesus departed, and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And man, when I read that that morning, I began to see some stuff in Jesus that was just not in me. I saw some stuff in him that didn't look like me at all, and I understood that Christianity was Christ living his life through me, and that God was in a process of conforming me to the image of Christ, and so I just began to spend time with Jesus in these verses and what crystallized ultimately out of that was that's the very text the very morning that God solidified in mine and my my wife's heart a call to put a yes on the table to say Lord we don't know where we don't know when but the answer is yes and ultimately a few weeks after that is when God put the the invitation on our hearts to go to Las Vegas Nevada and join in his activity of planting a church but but it began that morning just pursuing Christ's life in the gospels And out of those verses, I want to share with you three things. Three things. I know the people that are here tonight, like you didn't just happen in here. You had to get an ark to get here tonight. Like you're here because you wanted to be here tonight. But these three things, I think these three things are going to be applicable for every person sitting in this room. Three things that I have to remind myself of through the power of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. Here's the first one. As Christ increases in me, I realize that God's primary call on my life is not ministry, it's intimacy. Let me say that again. Everybody in this room, in some way, shape, or fashion, you're you're in ministry. Now, you may not be vocationally in ministry, but if you're here tonight, you're probably using your gifts and service in this body. You are in ministry. You are living on mission. But here's what I learned by reading these verses. God's primary call on my life is not ministry. God's primary call on my life is intimacy. And here's the way you can finish that sentence. Ministry is what he does out of the overflow of intimacy. 
You say, where do you see that in these verses? We'll go back to verse 42. It says, and when it was day, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. Now, those two words are important. It says he, 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 he departed and he went. The word departed here is a word that means to go away from something. In the Greek text, it's, it's describing leaving something behind. Jesus is walking away from one thing, and the Bible says he went. It means to go towards something else. So what we see Jesus doing here, here is walking away from one thing with an intentionality to pursue something else. Well, what's he walking away from? Well, what does it say? The Bible says it was day, he was leaving, and the people, the crowds, were searching for him. Get this. People, ministry, opportunity is coming after Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus being the only one who ever could meet every need in his life, Jesus is walking away from ministry towards something else. What's he going towards? Well, it says he went to a lonely place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us. Mark does. In Mark's account of this story, in Mark 135, Mark says, when it was early in the morning, Jesus went out while it was still dark to a lonely place, and he was praying there. Not just any preacher can add an effect like that right at the end of a Scripture quotation. We should probably give the invitation right now. I watched many of you jump with the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, during the worship, I felt the call of God for James up here in the choir. I don't know where he's sitting out here, but I said, who is that guy? Is that you over there, Brother James, up here in the choir? Yeah, I think God's called you to Las Vegas, man. I really do. I, I watched you worship this morning. I watched you worship tonight, and I've already sent for your church letter to be sent to us out in Las Vegas. You just come on. <laughs> your pastor said you're not going, but by the end of this sermon, he's going to be all about sending, and he's going to be on board. But the Bible says Jesus was praying there. Here's what's happening. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, is walking away from ministry to pursue intimacy with the Father. Here's the point. Everything Jesus did, he did out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus modeled for us what the Christian life was supposed to look like. Now, don't mishear my words. Theologically, Jesus is infinitely more than a model. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God in human form. But it doesn't discount the reality that he also modeled for us what it looked like to live in dependence on the Father. Think about all the times in the Scripture that you see Jesus living in dependence on the Father. Jesus said this in John 14. He said, when you hear my words, it's not my words. It's the Father's words in me. Jesus said this, the Son can do nothing on his own initiative unless it is that which he sees the Father doing. Jesus, as God in the flesh, laid aside the privileges of being God and lived in dependence on the Father. And everything that took place in his life was the work of the Father in and through him. He was showing us what it looked like to live in dependence on the Father. The Christian life for you and me is the exact same. Remember what Jesus said? I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You know the problem with that verse? We think nothing means big things. Let a big thing come along and what do we become? Dependent on the Lord. But let it be just an average, ordinary, regular day and we, we may or may not need the Lord today. You know what's interesting? Ministry, doing stuff for Jesus, often becomes the great love affair that woos us away from intimacy with Jesus. We get so busy doing stuff for Jesus, we don't have time to be with Jesus. And we miss the very essence of what he invited us into. He didn't, invite, he didn't invite us into a performance race. He invited us into a personal relationship. And everything Jesus desires to do through your life, he'll do out of the overflow what he's doing in your life. 
I've been in ministry now for over 30 years, and I've seen some of my friends fall morally in ministry. Here's what I found in the ones that I've talked to. Every man that had an affair in ministry first had an affair with the ministry that opened his heart up to things that he never thought he would ever walk down and pursue. I know the people in this room. You're here. It's storming outside. You're here because you are committed. You are invested. You own this work. But let me tell you, be careful. Be weary. Be be wary of substituting doing something for Jesus instead of being with Jesus. And in, and in case you think I'm making too much out of this narrative text here, I want you to flip over your Bible to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we read the story of the calling of the first disciples. The first disciples Jesus called to himself in Mark 3 verse 13. Listen to what it says. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that, there's an important phrase, here's the reason why, so that he called them. Why? They might, if you got it open there, what does it say? They might what? Be with him. You see it? So that they might be with him. Wait a minute. Shouldn't that say that he appointed 12 and called them so that they could go into all the nations and make disciples? Shouldn't it say that he called them so that they could go out and preach the gospel? But it says he called them to himself, and here's why, so that they would be with him. Now read the rest of it. So that they would be with him and he might send them out to preach. I know what you're thinking. Aha, there it is. I knew they had to do something. But look, underline the they and the he. They only had one responsibility, to be with him. And then it says, he would send them out to preach. Now, you hear the word preach, and you think about what I'm doing right now, but it's a word that simply means to make public. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Here was the original call to the first 12 followers that is the model and example for every one of us. He said, you be with me, and then I will make my life public through you. Everything Jesus desires to do through our lives Publicly, he'll do out of the overflow of our intimate fellowship relationship with him. Major Ian Thomas said it this way, the Christian life is nothing less than the life he lived then, lived now by him in you. Can I, ask, can I, can I, can I tell you a question I've asked myself a lot over the last 21 years? Because September 1999, I'm sitting in my living room being discipled by Clyde Cranford. I'm reading Luke just to pursue Christ's life in the Gospels. I read these verses. That morning, I went and got my wife. We knelt down in our living room. We said, Lord, yes. We don't know where. We don't know when. The answer is yes. Then God (laughs) had the audacity to fill in the blank with Las Vegas, Nevada. (laughs) I grew up in Alabama. If you're from Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas. If you do, you don't tell anybody, right? Like, we don't think Las Vegas is hell, but we think you can smell it from there. It's close. You couldn't have picked a place further off my radar, but I so knew that God had called us, and we've spent the last 21 years out there joining in God's activity. But you know what I've asked myself a thousand times? What if I hadn't been with him that morning? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God needed advanced commitment. God was doing this in Las Vegas with or without me. What would I have missed out on? If you'd have given me a whiteboard and a room and a mark and said, man, dream up the dream of what you're going to do for God. Let me tell you what one city in the world wouldn't have made the board. Sin City, are you kidding me? Like I would never pick Las Vegas. Nobody growing up where I grew up says, man, I'd love to raise my kids in Vegas. But everything he wanted to do out of the, in my life, he did out of the overflow what he was doing in my life through personally pursuing him. Let me ask you a question. Have you gotten so busy doing stuff for Jesus that that's become your excuse to not be with Jesus? Just fall back in love with him. 
Can I let you in on a powerful secret? He has no expectation of you today other than to be with him. And everything else that happens in your life of eternal significance will be what he does out of the overflow of your intimate love relationship with him. I know what you're thinking, but, but don't I have to obey him today? <laughs> yes, but we've misunderstood what obedience is. You know what John 14, 15 says? Here's another verse I didn't understand for most of my Christian life. John 14, 15. If you know it, say it with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know tell you how I heard that most of my Christian life? Here's how I heard it. If you love me, you better obey me. Now, when you hear it that way, where's the focus? Obedience. Why? Because I got to show God I love him by obeying him. Did you know that's not what he said? Here's what he said. If you love me, <laughs> you will keep my commandments. Emphasis not on keeping my commandments. Emphasis on loving me. And so when we focus on trying to obey him, let me ask you a question. How's that working out for you? When we try really hard to obey him, you know what I do? I may do good for a few hours, then I fall on my face, and then I try again, and I fall on my face. But when I simply live out of the overflow of intimacy with Christ, the only way to experience victory and freedom and rest is to allow Christ in you to live through you out of the overflow of fellowship with him. That's the first lesson. The primary call is not ministry, it's intimacy. Here's the second one. As Christ increases in me, I realize that God's call on my life is not just to a church. It's to a city. It's another thing. We got backwards a little bit in our culture in Baptist life. And listen, you got to understand, I've given 21 years of my life to planting churches. I've given 31 years of my life to leading in pastoral ministry. Our church in Las Vegas has started 80 churches out of our church in the western United States up and down the west coast. We've sent 400 people out of our fellowship to go be about planting churches. I believe in the local New Testament church. But the church is not the goal. The goal is the kingdom of God expanded in cities and nations all over the world. The local New Testament church is a temporary tool established by Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom. And if you don't believe that, let me prove it to you. This church, this glorious, great church, pastor that you've led for 32 years, I'm going to give you a word of discouragement. You told me to bring encouragement. I'm going to give you a word of discouragement. One day, this beautiful church is going to die. How dare you? I got biblical evidence. Every church Paul planted in the New Testament's dead and gone. But hear me. The kingdom of God is alive and well. The real goal is not Olive Baptist Church. The real goal is the kingdom of God expanded in the city of Pensacola. God, when he gave us the model prayer, he didn't say pray for your church to grow. He said pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that the kingdom of God be expanded in your city as it is in heaven. I'm not saying we shouldn't put emphasis and value on the church. I'm just saying that the real aim is the city, that the, the gospel. What if, we, what if we stop measuring success by how many people come to our church and we started measuring whether or not the percentage of lostness is going down in our cities? We have the largest churches on the American continent we've had in the history of the United States of America with fewer people going to church in America than we've ever had. Something is broken in how we're going about it. When I begin to see in the text that I read for you, Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns. It's a word that's translated towns, cities, communities. Jesus had on his heart a passion for the cities of the world to be impacted with the gospel. It's a biblical pattern. Think of all the letters in the New Testament written with the names of cities in their name. We call it the book of Ephesians, but it's a letter to the church in Ephesus. All the emphasis is on cities. Jesus wept over cities in the New Testament. Paul had a heart for the cities. Paul wanted to get to Rome. 
There's an Old Testament book of the Bible where the whole book of the Bible is about God's heart for one city, the city of Nineveh. What if we got radical? And instead of having meetings to strategize how to grow our church, we started strategizing how to penetrate the lostness of our city. Here's what's convicting to me as I travel and speak to pastors and leaders all across the country. A lot of them don't even know the percentage of lostness in their city. It's not even something that we're looking at. When I moved to Las Vegas 21 years ago, 92% of our city, excuse me, 95% of our city was non-Christian. 60% of our city was non-religious meaning they didn't claim any faith at all. But 95% of our city is non-Christian. Now, 21 years later, our newest stat, we just saw 92% of our city is now non-Christian. That's only 3%, but that's 3% moving a needle in the right direction. The kingdom of God is expanding in our city. And it should be said of our cities that the, the, the percentage of lostness is being penetrated. How do we do that? Let me give you three, quickly, three marks of what it looks like to think about being a, a church that's about the city and not just the church. Number one, there needs to be a practice of serving the city. We need to become partners in our city. In Las Vegas, we partner in several areas in the fight against human trafficking. We've just in the last 24 months seen 17 juvenile girls that were trafficked around the world that landed in the city of Las Vegas. We've seen them getting caught in the court system, and the court system gives them to us. And we've walked with 17 girls through a two-year process where they've gotten their GED. They've been taught that they're loved and valued by a God that made them in his image. And several of them have come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior serving the city. We, we work with the, the homeless population. We work in the foster care community. We're partners with the Department of Family Services. And I know your church here is engaged in that way, but here's what we got to think. We're not just having some programs so we can say we're doing something in the city, but we understand the church is the missionary in the city to engage the city with the gospel. Robert Lewis wrote a book years ago called The Church of Irresistible Influence. Here's what he said. If your church were removed from your city tomorrow, would anybody but your members or attenders notice or even care? He said, we've become islands unto ourselves, known by the corner we inhabit rather than by the city with which we interact. What if we begin to think about ways to engage the city with the gospel so that lostness began to be penetrated? That's the heart of Jesus in the gospels. But not only a practice of serving the city, a passion to multiply the church. We have 47,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Only 4,000 of those churches are engaged in any way with Sin Network and planting churches. We have a lot of our churches that have never even thought about planting a church. Did you know you, can't, you cannot fulfill the Great Commission without being involved in planting new churches? The Great Commission says take the gospel, go to cities, and make disciples. Guess what happens? When you go to cities and make disciples with the gospel, churches are born as a byproduct. Church planting is a byproduct of living out the Great Commission. We can't fulfill the mission without doing this. A passion to multiply the church. And then thirdly, we got to have a, a, a passion to see multicultural expressions of the gospel. One of the things I love most about our church in Las Vegas is we have 54 first languages spoken in our fellowship. Our church looks like a bag of Skittles got dumped out on Sunday morning. It's black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, and everything in between. Now, that stretches you when a church is multicultural. It's also multipolitical and multi-theological. You want to walk through a challenging 24 months, man. Lead the last 24 months when you got as many Democrats as Republicans in the same church. That's a blessing. And I know, depending on which side of the political aisle you sit on, that statement itself shocked you because some of you think you can't be saved and sit on the other side. It's how warped our kingdom worldview has gotten We've forgotten that two of the first disciples were Matthew and Simon. Matthew was a tax collector, which meant he'd buddied up with Rome to make money off extorting from his own people, the Jews. And Simon was so radicalized by the Jews, he was Simon the Zealot who wanted through any means necessary to throw Rome out of the nation of Israel, out of the Holy Land, and let Israel run things again like division politically in the first 12 disciples. But here's the beauty. What united them in Christ and the kingdom was greater than what divided them in the politics of the day. What a tragedy of the last 24 months in America when the world should have been able to look at the church of Jesus Christ and see something different. And yet when they looked at us on social media, they saw us freaking out just like the rest of the world. 
Like our God's not sovereign. Like he's not sitting on the throne. Like he doesn't hold the world in his hands. But the church of Jesus Christ should be a multicultural expression of the gospel. Now, not every church has got to have 54 languages in it, but every church should look like its community. And if every church doesn't look like its community, there's a missiological problem in how we're engaging that community with the gospel. It's a tragedy today that the average local school is 20 times more integrated than the local church in the same community. Something's backward when legislation has moved the needle further than the power of the reconciling good news of Jesus. The only hope for our country, the only hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the city, not just the church. You see, up until that morning sitting in my living room, as long as the church I pastored was good, the offering was good, the attendance was good, the Sunday school was good, nobody was fighting, I was good. My city could have gone to hell in a handbasket. I didn't care. As long as the church was good, I was good. See how disconnected I'd gotten from the heart of Christ, whose passion was to see the kingdom expanded to other cities. It's an important word, other, if you think I'm pushing into the text, this multicultural ideology the word other here, there are two words in the Greek language for other. One is allos, another of the same kind. We get the English word ally from it. The other is heteros. We get our word heterosexual from it, another of a different kind. Jesus here says, I must preach the kingdom to other cities, other towns, others of a different kind. There's a reason why in, in Acts 1-8 when he said to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, he specified those two regions because there was such a cultural divide. There's a reason why the first problem in the church is not a theological problem in Acts 6. It's a cultural problem because the gospel brought people together from multiple cultures and they had to figure out how to do life together. But the only way to do that is the power of the gospel. Third thing, and I'm finished. As Christ increases in me, I realize that God's activity in my life locally is always connected to his activity globally. Jesus uses this phrase in this text. To be honest, I'd heard it before, but it wasn't until that morning in September of 1999 when I read it that I really, this phrase jumped off the page, and for the last 21 years of my life, there's not a phrase in Scripture that has more dominated my life than this phrase. The kingdom of God. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Did you know that the kingdom of God is referenced over 100 times in 16 different books of the New Testament? I would submit to you today, if God puts something in the Bible one time, it's important. If it gets 100 references in two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, and one of them is Jesus saying, seek first. And for the Greek scholars in the room, it's not a suggestion where he's laying it on the table for us to pray about putting it in our top ten list. It's an imperative where Jesus is commanding us that the kingdom of God is to be that which everything else in our life revolves around. What is the kingdom of God? For sake of time, let me give you a definition. It's God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. I'll say it one more time. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. It's the big picture of what God is doing in the world. You do understand that as we sit here tonight in this comfortable auditorium, even though there's rain outside, that God is moving all over the world, and this thing called Christianity is moving towards a glorious grand climax. Amen? Hey, one day, maybe today, one day somewhere in the world, the last soul is going to be ushered into the kingdom of God. And the Bible says the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Then the dead in Christ are going to be raised first, and we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. One day King Jesus is going to come again. And right now what's happening is in cities and nations and communities and cultures all over the world, God is on his eternal redemptive mission of redeeming a people to himself 
himself from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And missions is not what we do as a department in the church. The mission is why the church was born. I really think we should crucify the S in missions. We've created a department where the weirdos in the church go to the dark hallway and get the special ops training while the rest of us put some money in a basket and pray for them as they go do the hard stuff. We think missions is what's reserved for the Navy SEALs of the church. But here's the reality. The mission is why we were born. And the good news is we're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. Here's what that means. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than in any other single time in human history. You did not hear what I just said. Because if you'd have heard what I just said, you'd have said something. I'm going to say it one more time to give you another shot. We are living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. And get this, God birthed this church for such a time as this. And here's what we do. We get so focused on what's happening right here. Well, COVID's been hard. It's been tough, Pastor. You know, I really like just watching church in my pajamas at home. Church is not an event you watch. It's a family to which you belong. You know what the enemy did with COVID? He made us look at us. We now focused on just trying to get back what we had rather than to go get what we never had, which is the world that's lost. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. God is moving in the world today in this global harvest, and he's invited us to be a part of it. And Jesus, I love the language. He said, I must. He didn't say I might. He didn't say maybe. He said, I must. I'll close with this story. In 2004, the Olympic Games were held in the historic location of Athens, Greece. If you remember, there were some big names that came out of that for the first time. Michael Phelps, the swimmer. Paul Hom, the first all-around gold medal man's gymnast from America to win the gold medal in like years and years there's another name that came out of those Olympics that you may or may not have ever heard. His name is Matt Emmons. Matt was in the three-position 50-meter rifle event, and Matt was literally the best in the world. Like, he was so good that he had to take three shots in, in the Olympics to win. He was so far ahead after the first two shots, then when it came to the third shot, all he had to do was hit the target anywhere, and he wins. I mean, for a guy of his skill, Rick Riley wrote an article in Sports Illustrated. It said, it'd be like telling Picasso, all you got to do is hit the canvas. So Emmons Ames takes his last shot, steps back to celebrate his gold medal, looks up at the scoreboard, and the judge gave him a zero. He looked at the judge and said, something must be wrong. That's a, there's a glitch. So they zoom the camera in onto Matt Emmons' target, and sure enough, there's no bullet hole in his target anywhere. They panned the camera to the left. And with his final shot, Matt Emmons accidentally cross-fired and aimed at the wrong target. And not only did he not win the gold medal, he fell completely out of medal contention and didn't place at all. Now, if you're a family member of Matt Emmons, I'm sorry for making you relive that horrific event. It actually worked out. He went back in 2008, did win the gold medal, and met his wife-to-be at the, future, at, the, at the Olympic Games in 2008. So it became a great story for Matt Emmons. So he's okay. But here's the moral of the story of Matt Emmons. We better be sure we're aiming at the right target. And what this passage did for me 21 years ago is it clarified the target. It's not ministry, it's intimacy. It's not just the church, it's the city. It's not just local, it's global.
And I know in the room tonight, we got people that are in. You're with this. But maybe in one of those areas, your target needs to be calibrated just a little bit, like mine did, to prepare you for what he has next for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I believe I did tonight what you asked me to do. Wasn't what I planned, but Lord, I don't want to follow my plan. I've messed this up too many times. As we sit quietly before the Lord, I'm about to turn it over to your pastor. But I just want to walk you through these three things to just calibrate for just a minute. Are you so focused on living for Jesus, serving Jesus, that you've gotten too busy to just be with Jesus? Here's words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what that means. There's nothing of eternal significance today that will happen and be born out of your life apart from fellowship with him. Maybe right now you just need to, in the stillness of this moment, return to your first love. Second question, you got a great, 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 great church here. But are you so consumed with the church that you've forgotten about the city that God birthed your church to reach? You know, we can always tell when we're getting out of balance here, when we start sitting inside the church and talking about them. You know why lost people? Are the way they are. Lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. That's why. We get in our churches and we've been saved so long we've forgotten what it's like to be lost. And we can sit in self-righteous judgment over the lostness and how they live. When the reality is, apart from the grace of Jesus, that'd be us. Are you burdened about the city of Pensacola? Then finally, and this is what's important, the mission is simply Christ in me. You see, when I read this text, here's what I realized. Being on mission is just who Jesus is. It's not for the super Christian. It's just who Christ is. If I'm not living on mission, that's not a mission problem in my life. That's a Christ-likeness issue in my life. Holy Spirit of God, in the stillness of this moment, would you have your way?